everyone, and welcome to Radically Normal. In today's episode, titled The Usual Suspects, Mike and I will discuss the famine and injustices against the people of Jerusalem, the schemes against Nehemiah's plan, as well as the completion of the wall. I hope you guys enjoy the discussion. Hey everyone, what's up? Andre and I just got lunch at Kane's, but before that we were supposed to go to Bread Zeppelin because we ate with my girlfriend, and she wanted to go to Bread Zeppelin because she's gluten-free and can't eat at many places such as Kane's. And when Andre heard that we, we wanted to go to Bread Zeppelin, which if you haven't been, it's just a Dallas place, but essentially it's just like a salad made into a sandwich type of thing. And Andre asked, can we go somewhere with non-vegetarian options because he doesn't want to end up like the people in Nehemiah 5? Who are starving, you will soon find out. And I must say that I kind of was, I'm starting to hope that this tradition of getting food before we record on the weekends kind of carries on to every single day because it's so much easier to record on like full stomach, you know? Yes, but it's also nice to record knowing there's some money left in the bank account. So I guess like empty stomach or empty wallet, which one do you want? Yeah, send us a message letting us know which one is better. How are they going to send us a message, Michael? Well, there's always Instagram, Twitter, or I guess we'll announce that now, the email. If you ever want to send an email, you can email radicallynormalpod at gmail.com. Good plug there. Um, So basically, we got Canes and then ate, spent some time talking about what we're going to talk about today. His girlfriend wanted to listen kind of what the process was, so that was kind of cool. I don't know if the process was that interesting because she fell asleep and then left, but hopefully the podcast is better than uh, the prep then. And I guess one thing we want to say was since Red Zeppelin is a kind of a Dallas only restaurant, we're kind of talking about what the top restaurants would be um, to take someone to if they're coming to Dallas for the first time. And since I don't want Michael to take mine, I'm going to go ahead and say mine first and mine would be heart eight. Which That's is, very frustrating because I had the same exact one and Andre literally wouldn't tell me before the episode began and I, he was like, I'm going to go first so we don't have the same one and I just found out that we have the same place. But okay. yes, Heart 8 is incredible. Okay, so Heart 8 is definitely the place to take someone if you're coming to, to Texas for the first time. It's like an authentic Texas barbecue experience. It's not super expensive. It is super good. Well, I will say if you go there and you get a good meal, you're going you're gonna to go out of there spending a good 16 to $20. Okay, kind but, of expensive. But, but for barbecue, it is, it's very, very good and not super expensive. It's worth every penny. And that's where the uh, empty wallet is worth it. And it is the, very much the authentic Texas experience. I definitely agree. Heart Eight's the place, and it's about 10 minutes. So if you're ever 10 minutes from where we are, but if you ever come to Dallas and you need a good restaurant and you need an authentic experience from the area, definitely go to Heart Eight. Uh, we go there quite a bit, and their barbecue is the best in the area. So are you going to give a restaurant, or are you just going to kind of piggyback off mine, or what are we doing here? Well, I don't know if it's piggybacking, because I didn't know in advance, and I'd already thought of Heart 8, and that, that I'm saying that with integrity. But uh, I don't know. Bread Zeppelin's kind of interesting. If I was taking some someone somewhere for lunch, Bread Zeppelin might be on the list. And I'm not sure if this is a national thing or not, but Kenny's Burger Joint has some incredible burgers. That's about 15 minutes from where we are right now. And they, that's an incredible restaurant as well. So I'm not really sure, but I guess I'll piggyback off you. The the good thing about Bread Zeppelin is that it's close to Heart 8. So when you're so hungry from only (laughs) eating a salad and a small piece of bread, then you can just drive right across the street to Heart 8, have some real Texas food. Okay. What's your go-to order? You got to get a little bit of everything. So like what happens is you get there and you can just like point, pick and choose what you want. You definitely got to get some ribs. Got to get some, like, you got to get... You definitely got to get ribs. You got to get maybe 
definitely make a sandwich because that's the cheapest option. End up spending only like 10 bucks. So you get like a brisket sandwich. So I think that'd definitely be the go-to brisket sandwich plus ribs. Huh, that's interesting. Brisket is definitely on my list though. I wouldn't make a sandwich. And then I'd also get the turkey. I think their turkey is really good. My one complaint about Hard Eight, as good as the barbecue is and as good as the sweet tea is and the, the entire experience, the barbecue sauce, everything like that. And it's really cool to sit in there and to be in line. It's just a, it's a really unique experience. My one dig is that the only cream corn I'm pretty sure they have is with jalapenos in it, which is not really my suit or style of food or eating. So that's my one dig on Heart 8, though I would still take people there for sure. Yeah, super good. We should probably get into Nehemiah, though. Yeah, let's get into Nehemiah because fortunately we're blessed to get to experience Heart 8, but there was some trouble with famines and eating here in Nehemiah chapter 5. So let's dive in. So the connection is that at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 5, the people are literally starving. Don't even have enough grain to eat, which I'm assuming is their primary source of food at this point. Yeah, so let's go back a little bit. So just to recap, since at this point you've probably listened to the previous week's episodes on Nehemiah 1 through 4. So remember, just Nehemiah prays at the beginning for success. He's sad about the state of Jerusalem. So he has a conversation with King Artaxerxes of Persia, gets to go to Jerusalem. He builds the wall. He faces some opposition along the way, which we're going to see coming up in chapter 6. But the work resumes. And this time it resumes with them preparing for battle or preparing for an attack. But then that was more of an external thing. We see a problem on the inside here and there's a famine. So why don't you keep talking about that? So, yeah, so basically they're very hungry because there's not enough food. There's a famine. And what Michael and I's first point was on both of our notes was they're going from external problems to internal problems. And why is that happening? It's mostly because of the famine. And that's leading to a lot of people, specifically the poor people, are beginning to become exploited because they haven't really had the opportunity to work their land. They don't really have any money. There's a famine. Obviously things are becoming more expensive. Um, you can think of this as like a like just normal, typical economy when there's not that much money or think or ability to work prices go up and people have no money, especially the poor people. Yeah. So they're not able to work because if you remember Nehemiah saying at the end of chapter four, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. So the rural farmers who farmed outside of the city walls or the building city walls right now, those who lived outside couldn't do their normal work. They had to stay within the city, so they couldn't work. And then since Judah is now being built up by Nehemiah in the city of Jerusalem, Judah is really being cut off from its neighbors. So that's causing some economic hardship as well. And then like, like Andre said, there's a lot of reasons for their trouble, but they end up having to mortgage their property and the farmers had to borrow money to pay taxes, but they get exploited here, which is where Nehemiah steps in to address the injustice. And so looking at the exploitation, as we both said, the interesting thing about it is that they're being exploited by their own Jewish brothers and sisters, and they're being exploited primarily by people who in this community are considered to be wealthy. And what's really happening is, I guess we could go point by point, and if you have any points about any of them, just let me know and I'll stop. But going off of exploitation, the first thing is that they're being charged taxes um, and also interest on loans that they're taking out to get be able to buy food. Um, there's some connections to this in Luke chapter 20, where basically it's talking about what happens when people who are in like position of power are like, oppressing people who are not. Um, and basically, it's not really a moral thing to charge interest to people who need Um, money for just basic needs. Then the next thing is that they're having to mortgage their lands, as Michael said. And this was important because land was an important part of family culture during this time. So it must have meant a lot to them to have to like not have control over their lands, give those up. Um, And the next point is that some of their daughters are becoming enslaved. 
And I know and, you have and their sons and their sons. I know you have a point about this one, but basically, what I wrote was that basically they have a history of coming out of slavery, and so it's very interesting that they would put their own people of their community back into slavery, knowing that they all have this shared history and shared hurt. Yeah, for sure. So it is if you pay attention to Levitical law from say Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and 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 those books earlier in the Old Testament narrative you do see that they are allowed to have people go into debt slavery, but there's very specific rules about how that's to take place. And after a certain amount of years, you have to um, return those people and that sort of thing. And then when the daughters specifically, when they say some of our daughters have already been enslaved, you see that sometimes daughters might have been taking as some sort of second wife there. But what's really interesting is actually down in verse 8. Nehemiah holds a great assembly and says to the people that he has a problem with, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. So what we see here is a little bit of historical reference to where there's an effort by the Jews to get back children that were probably sold into debt slavery. So he says, hey, we all worked super hard to get these Jewish people back, these children that were in debt slavery, and now you're humiliating your own people by doing the same exact thing. And okay, so and this really just shows that they're not doing what's right, and it really makes Nehemiah angry. And he, we see him get more and more angry, and eventually he just confronts the people. But the main reasons why he's angry is because all the things that they were doing was just highlighting their greed. And it was also, it, it was honestly against the Jewish law to do with the things that they were doing, and it just didn't show love either towards the people of their community. Yeah, I think one inclination we might have is to see Nehemiah be angry about the injustices going on, but then we might view it isolated from his faith. So as we're going to see here in verse 9, verse 10, and as we continue through chapter 5, he really has this heart for those who are oppressed because of his fear of God, because of his faith in God. So when he's speaking of the good of the return from the exile and talking about the injustice and the problems it causes, it's all because of his fear of God. He says in verse 9, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? And Nehemiah is saying, a fear of God would lead to you caring about injustice, and that would in turn prevent the enemy's taunts, the taunts about the Jews exploiting one another. This is kind of a more recent historical reference, but if you think about the U.S. pushing democracy on the world uh, across the globe in the 20th century, a lot of our foreign enemies or a lot of countries abroad could pinpoint the U.S. and say, okay, you're pushing democracy and equality and human rights, but you have all of these racial injustices. Kind of similarly here in Nehemiah, we see here that he's saying, you should care about injustices and our enemies are going to taunt us about us proclaiming the name of Yahweh and the goodness of God's people if we have all of these injustices in our own land. So basically now we see that Nehemiah is talking to the people who are causing these problems and he's telling them like, this isn't what God would want you to do. And we really see how his response to the wealthy people is really a good one because it gets them to kind of go back on what they did and to fix the problem. So the first thing that he does is tell them that this isn't what God wants them to do. Then he tells them that they should restore what they did um, and give the people back their lands, give the people back their children. And then he also makes them promise that they're going to do that. And then he asks God to shake them out for everything that they're worth if they don't um, follow through with their promises. So we see him like, do a three-step part of how he makes sure that the people actually listen to him and do what's right. Yeah, two things I want to say there is maybe so far you're reading this story here in chapter 5 and wondering, it just feels so disconnected from the narrative of building the wall or rebuilding the wall, and I don't really see how it fits in with the story. But if you remember back in our first episode of Nehemiah, 
Andre and I talked a lot about themes in this book of the Bible, and we talked a lot about restoration and reformation. And here we see Nehemiah seeking to restore just practices. So this is just one example in a multitude that we're going to see as we continue in Nehemiah of him just seeking to restore just practices and this fitting within that larger theme in the book of Nehemiah. And the second thing is, it gets. I got really confused when I first read chapter or verse thirteen for the first time. Nehemiah saying, "I also shook out the fold of my garment," and then he he gives a quote or he says what he said. And what's what's interesting here is, you know, if you picture somebody today just shaking out their garment or their cloak or something that they're wearing, that might not mean anything. But back in the day, some people used to keep some of their personal items in their garments. So when Nehemiah shakes out what he's what he has. He's showing a curse. If they didn't follow these implemented rules that they swore to, they would be emptied and left with nothing. I guess you could just think of it like emptying your pockets, like just going to like lose your money or whatever. Right. It's just that in this case, it shows a curse. And exactly. that's, that's quite a bit different. What is interesting, though, is just to finish up this section, like near verse 13, at the end of verse 13, the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. So this restoration of justice leads to worship among the people of God because they've been relieved of all guilt and tension in their wrongdoing. And this kind of reminds me of just the gospel in our own souls, souls that we've, when we've been relieved of our guilt because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that on the cross and through the resurrection, our faith in that leads to a reconciliation with God the Father and allows us to worship him freely. And by turning this into kind of a prayer slash conversation with God, he kind of brings God into the equation and he that like more so portrays how if they don't follow through, God's going to be the one to punish them. Yes, for sure. He's definitely appealing to his authority from God to do this work of restoration amongst the people in Jerusalem. And then now we're going to go into the next section, which in my Bible is titled Nehemiah's Generosity, which is exactly what it's about, because it really just shows Nehemiah's generosity and compassion towards the people that he's leading. And we see like a bunch of examples of how he's just portraying servant leadership and like leading and acting as he feels like, like definitely he should it given the circumstances and how God would want him to. Yeah. So if you just remember back from the very beginning, first episode of Nehemiah, Andre asked me a question about the 20th year and how that was obviously part of Artaxerxes reign. Well, here we see that referenced again. He says from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king. And then he talks about how he was governor in the land. So this is a 12 year span in which he's governor. And that's from about 445 to 433 BC. And then he begins to jump in about what former governors have did done with the food allowance of the governor and how he is different. And this is really interesting because in the previous section, we see how Nehemiah tells them that it's really wrong and it's not what God would want them to do to take advantage of um, their brothers and sisters and to basically charge them interest, take their lands, do that kind of thing. A lot of the taxation that was going on. But basically what Nehemiah is alluding to here is that as the governor, it's honestly his prerogative to tax the people um, and to benefit from the construction of the wall and to benefit from this project. And also to tax them to cover his own expenses, which as we see here, Nehemiah is probably using his the own money that he's earning from his time working for the king, which we know is like a very good position. So he was probably compensated very well. So he's using his own resources to feed, it says, sometimes over 150 people a day. Um, he is providing grain. He's doing all these things and he's not taxing the people to cover, cover those expenses. 
Yeah, for sure. So with that, the food allowance of the governor would have just been Nehemiah basically taking extra money that he was allowed to implement as governor, like Andre was talking about, and then live a more lavish lifestyle because of that. But he says, I did not do so because of the fear of God. So what's really interesting here is that he's walking with integrity because of his fear of God. And I think that really applies to just like how we walk through life now when it comes to secret sin or anything like that. You know, we should be walking upright, not because, you know, what other people might think of us and maybe our fear of man or us seeking the approval of people around us, but just because we know that there is a sovereign king who reigns over everything and we want to walk with integrity day to day. This is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, you know, don't pray so that other people will see you. Don't fast so that other people will see you. Do these things in secret, but your father who sees you will reward you. So when we're just thinking about integrity here, uh, we just really see that the motive for Nehemiah is his fear of God. And we really see him honestly living by example. And one thing about this section that Michael and I talked about for quite a bit before we started recording, and we were trying to like figure out how we'd want to say it and all, but basically Nehemiah never says that it's wrong for someone to benefit or make money off of their the ministry that they're doing because building the wall is his ministry and he's doing it for God's kingdom. And Nehemiah like definitely points out that it wouldn't be wrong for him to like benefit from it, to make money from it, to cover his own expenses. And if we look to like current day, like I definitely think that what he's saying isn't you should just like live off the bare minimum and give all your money to the poor if you are someone who's like a pastor or, or doing a certain ministry, which there are definitely people who do that and it's like a very commendable thing. But I don't think he's saying that that is what you have to do or that we shouldn't trust pastors or people who don't do that. More so, I think he's saying that we should use our like discernment and look at a situation and basically what we decided was that we should look and see if their actions are like bearing fruit. And that's how we should make the determinations of who we trust and how we should make determinations of how they're being good stewards or bad stewards of the money which has been provided to them. Yeah, for sure. I, d- I do think that anyone, not just a pastor, but anybody's generosity is really going to stem from their heart. So where where a pastor or, you know, even your friend or family members motive in giving is going to is going to re- be reflected in their giving, their heart in giving, their um, their approach to giving, their mindset of giving, how they feel about giving. You know, if we really take into account that every resource we have at hand, like just looking around the desk that we're sitting at, you know, we have canes i have i have a cup we have laptops we have a light we have a desk we have everything and so all of those things are given in generosity by god and since none of them are actually ours we can give freely to those around us because of the overflowing generosity of god towards us i think it's in john 17 jesus talks about the love of the father for him and how that overflows to us in the same way with generosity as the generosity of god flows into us it can flow outward to other people and just the work that Nehemiah was doing here by making sure that the people who were poor and oppressed were like taken care of very well. It kind of just like, it can like be connected to how Jesus always said to look out for the people who were like widows or um, were poor or oppressed and to look out for those people and to give to them and make, make sure they were okay. Yeah, for sure. I think I said this in a previous episode, but right now I'm reading through Matthew on my own. And what's interesting is I just read through in Matthew 23, his seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And one of the woes, he basically says, you know, you obey laws of tithing, although he does say you give very little. But he says you follow that law about tithing, but you don't care about the weightier matters. You don't practice mercy and faithfulness and justice. 
So Jesus is emphasizing, hey, and he says, but don't don't forget about the other things like tithing. But he's saying there's more to it than just the money, than just tithing. You need to be practicing justice and mercy. And here we see Nehemiah definitely practicing that. So I like the connection to Jesus. And I think as we continue in chapter six, there's going to be a lot of allusions or connections to the gospel accounts. And just like looking at Nehemiah's discernment, his wisdom, all like his obviously his wisdom coming from God. We see him praying a lot during this chapter. It's like a very good way to move on and move towards chapter six. For me, I don't really have anything else for chapter five. I don't know if you do, but we should, I think this is a good place to move on to chapter six. Yeah, for sure. So we jump, just like Andre said, when we jumped into an internal issue, now we jump back out to an external issue. And so now we move to chapter six. At this point, the wall is almost done. It says the only thing that's left to do is some gates. Um, And basically, as Michael said, we're moving back to an external issue. And what's happening is that Nehemiah's enemies, the same ones that we saw before, they're coming back and they're even more angry. They're even more desperate because they do see that the wall is almost completed. And now they're scheming again to see what they're going to do to deceive Nehemiah, to try to slow down his plans and to honestly just ruin him. Yeah. So in verse two, Sanbala and Geshem, Geshem, send him a letter saying, come meet us in this area that's not in Jewish territory. And I think, I think this really reminded me now, I'm going to go back one chapter in Matthew to Matthew 22, when Jesus is talking, or sorry, the Pharisees approach Jesus about paying taxes. And it says that Jesus could see their malicious intent. He could see that they wanted to pin him, that it wasn't a true fair question about paying taxes. They weren't really seeking to learn. They wanted to pin him down because if he said, yeah, you need to pay all your taxes. And that's all he said. It would have been viewed as very unpatriotic or supportive of the Jewish cause against the Roman Empire. But if he'd said, you know, don't pay your taxes, that would have made him a revolutionary in relation to the Roman authorities. So they were really trying to pin Jesus, but Jesus sees right through it. I think the same thing here with Nehemiah. He's kind of seeing right through what they're trying to do. But when I first read this, like in verse four, they sent me to it. They sent me this letter four times in this way. Man, my first takeaway was just picturing Nehemiah. I'd be getting so annoyed. They're sending me the same letter a billion times. Like, wouldn't I just get tired after the first one? They just seem super desperate. And then it doesn't only stop at that, but then they send a fifth letter. And what does this fifth letter say? It basically says in verse six, it is reported among the nations and Geshem. Also, it says that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And that is why you're building the wall. So basically they're accusing him now of building this wall because he wants to rebel against the neighboring kingdoms and because he wants to become the king of the Jews and start a revolt. And why is it significant is because this would have angered the king, King Artaxerxes, because the king is the one who's supported this wall and supported Nehemiah and also given him the money to build this wall. And now if he finds out from a letter that Nehemiah wants to rebel and become a king himself, he'll feel so slighted and honestly might even want to join the other people groups in attacking Nehemiah and attacking Jerusalem. Right. This is totally a charge of treason with relationship to Artaxerxes. And it really would have strained if it were true, it would have definitely strained or put an end to that relationship that as we discussed in the first episode and second episode, Artaxerxes would have been really fond of his cupbearer and Nehemiah was really faithful. And Artaxerxes clearly cared about him by, you know, observing that Nehemiah was really distressed and sad in the, at the beginning of the second chapter when they spoke about that. And then we see again, like I said, in the earlier verses, Nehemiah sees right through it. He says, 
no such things as you say have been done for you're inventing them out of your own mind. I think another translation says, you know, you've been fabricating this. It's all made up. And then he says, for they wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. So their goal of the lying here is to frighten them, to stop the work, to promote evil here. And I think we can resonate with this because although we might not have, you know, a foreign leader coming to us asking asking us to meet him so that they can lure us away from our project that is God-supported, I think Satan is often making us afraid of whatever God is calling us into because, you know, maybe we have too tight a grasp on our money or on this relationship or on this friendship or on this job or, you know, this degree or just anything like that. So often I think Satan is luring us away from what God is calling us to. And I kind of see the same thing here with Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. And then we see these people... They identify that Nehemiah isn't going to fall for these things. He puts an end to it by sending a letter back saying that's not what he's trying to do. And honestly, what would have happened was we saw in the past chapter that they were having an internal economic issue. And if Nehemiah would have reacted to any of these first two problems in the wrong way, he would have seen a different economic issue come up that the wall is not completely done yet. It says it's almost done, but the king probably would have stopped the funding to the wall, would have put an end to that, would have come up with a new economic issue. And now that they're seeing that, the people become even more scared that the wall is almost completed. So they come to a new method, which is to hire someone who is close to Nehemiah, who is like someone who's within the wall and they pay him to try to convince Nehemiah that people are going to come and kill him so that he goes into the temple to hide. And now we get to see Nehemiah's response to this, which is actually very, very interesting. Yeah. So don't miss in verse 10, Shemaiah, I think is talking and he says, for they are coming to kill you, they are coming to kill you. And what a commentary said was is that it's actually a poetic form emphasizing to kill you. So this would have been some sort of literary device that would emphasize this and perhaps even try to scare or make Nehemiah more afraid than he even should have been. But then they're really calling him into go into the temple. They want to eliminate the leader. This is really interesting because... He wouldn't have been allowed inside the temple for two reasons. One, laymen such as Nehemiah, and you might be thinking he's a governor, right? But he's not like a religious authority in the sense of being a priest or something like that. So he's not allowed in as a layman. And then second, I don't think we talked about this, but as a cupbearer to the king in Persia, he would actually probably have been a eunuch. And so as a eunuch, he would have been excluded from religious activity in the temple. So at first when I read this, I thought, if they're scaring Nehemiah into the temple, the sin would have been just to be afraid and not trust in God. But the real sin is for him not to be religiously observant of the law. This would have led the Jews to hate Nehemiah, not to trust him as their leader. And uh, they would have disbanded and not worked on the wall, this project that he has been so passionate about. And what does Nehemiah do is we see him say in verse 11, should such a man as I run away and what a man such as I could go into the temple and live. And basically that just shows that Nehemiah, he would basically, if, cause if these claims were true that they were coming to kill him, he would basically rather die than disobey God and not do something which would glorify God. Yeah, for sure. So then he says, he, and then in verse 12, he, he, again, this is like the third time this has happened in this chapter. He understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced prophecy against me. Obviously that's the first time that specific thing had happened. But it's the third time Nehemiah sees the inauthenticity, the false motive, uh, the desire to stop the kingdom work, the desire to stop whatever Nehemiah is up to. 
And so he concludes the chapter, or not the chapter, the section saying, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to the things that they have done. So this kind of reminds me of the prayer and at the end of chapter, or at the beginning of chapter four that we talked about, you know, it seems a little unjust. It doesn't seem like a father forgive them. So uh, there's definitely some of that going on, but I think there's more. I think there's, he just wants justice. Don't forget what they have done. Remember, Nehemiah is really focused on justice, especially in chapter five. And here he's saying, don't forget what they did. Kind of like David, you know, remember the righteous. I think that type of thing is underneath the surface of that quick prayer. Okay. And so if we look at the ways how Nehemiah was attempted to be scared and tempted and all these kinds of things, it happened three very distinct times. First, the four first letters that told him to come talk to him, which would have, they would have killed him. Then they say, they send him another letter saying that he wants to become the king and start a revolt. And then they try to convince him to go into the temple, which he should not have done. And the commentary, one side commentary, which I was reading, which is found on like the side of um, the Jesus Bible, which is basically Passion City Church's Bible, which has like commentaries from a bunch of different pastors, such as Louie and John Piper. Um, and basically what that commentary on the side was saying was that these three different ways how they tempted him really paralleled the ways how Jesus was tempted by Satan. And just like as an example, the second one saying that he should become a king and that he wants to start a revolt, it's basically honestly tempting him to actually do that because Nehemiah says, oh, now I have a wall. I have this power that people can follow me. Now, as this letter says, I could become a king. I could start a revolt. And that kind of um, is very similar to when Satan told Jesus, you could have all the kingdoms if you just do as I say. And then the third one, they can try to convince him to go into the temple. They're really just trying to convince him to tempt God not to kill him because he knows that he has favor with God. Just as when Satan tried to convince Jesus, he should just jump off the cliff and that the angels would come and save him. And basically that would also be Jesus tempting God. And so basically we see these parallels and how it's just like a very interesting thing that it happened in three very distinct ways that were very similar to something that happened later on in the gospels. Man, that's so good. I I really didn't see any of that, but it's, it's just crazy how much, you see, whether it be Nehemiah or it be David or Moses or Abraham or anything like that, these are all shadows of the Christ, the Messiah that's to come, with who the Jewish people are looking for. And the parallels are incredible. This just kind of goes back to what we've been saying in previous episodes, but really take the take Nehemiah in the context of the entire biblical narrative, that it's telling one big grand story, because the parallels that Andre just highlighted are a big pointer to that, that there's mirrors between the Gospels and Old Testament stories and that Jesus is constantly referring back to the Old Testament. And these things just all run together and it's just one beautiful big story when we when we take a step back and we look at it from, say, 30,000 feet. Um, so then they finished the wall. It says the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul, which would have been October. In 52 days, and scholars say that this would have been really, really fast to finish this wall. I read a bunch of different numbers, anywhere between 2,500 and 4 or 5,000 meters around. And then in verse 16, it says, Our enemies heard of it, and the nations grew afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Often we don't see it either. You know, we, we might go through life just thinking we're doing something without the hand of God in it. But then in that last moment, when everything comes together as one piece, we see God has been working behind the stage the entire time. And one thing that I saw that really just like highlights how much this is true, what you're saying just from the scripture is if you read the end of verse 16, which you didn't do, which it says, for they perceived that this work has been accomplished with the help of our God. Okay. That's really, really cool because we know that the three ways, how they try to trick, deceive, hurt Nehemiah, they were obviously very, very good plans. It's not like 
they just like attacked willy nilly as it, as they were trying to do in in chapter four but now they have these plans where they're trying to like specifically come up with a plan where they're gonna like do something very specific to scare nehemiah for example and at the end of the last section we see that their plan was that Nehemiah would go into the temple because he wasn't supposed to, and then they'd be able to taunt him because of that. And it specifically says taunt him, which I found to be very interesting because it seems to me like they didn't really identify that this plan was even better than what they initially thought because if Nehemiah had done that, he would have probably died. And because Nehemiah even says, would a man such as me go in and not be killed? Okay, that's really cool because now their enemies are identifying that the wall was accomplished because of the help of God. So now before they didn't really understand the tremendous power of God, but now they're attributing the success of Nehemiah to God. So it really just shows that that light switch really flipped. They now understand what's been going on this whole time. They really were confused, not even a few verses before. And now they're kind of enlightened, as you said, and they understand what's really going on. And that's, I think that's really, really cool. And it just shows how the scripture itself is highlighting how this change in their ability to comprehend has really happened. Yeah, I definitely think that they've began to comprehend what is going on. And and I like that you tied that to the help of our God because it's just so interesting to think about when we ascribe things to ourselves versus ascribe things to God, there's a self-crediting that we often want to do because it seems natural like we could accomplish that. But at the end of the day, none of us are self-sufficient. We're utterly dependent on God our ministries are utterly dependent on the Lord. And Nehemiah points it out, just like Andre read. It's been accomplished with the help of our God. But it's interesting that chapter 6 kind of concludes in a really peculiar way for me. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how it ends? So like you said, it's kind of peculiar to me because I guess I don't really have a point about this in my notes, but I just think that it kind of doesn't really follow the same kind of format or ideas really of the rest of the chapter we've been reading. I don't really know what it kind of all means, but I mean, I don't know. What do you have on that? Yeah. So I was really confused when I read this because it doesn't seem like this whole part about Tobias letters fits in with, we finished the wall in 52 days. This is an incredible accomplishment. The nations even perceived that it was God's work. And we know that it was done significantly because of the help of our God. And then they just move into this completely different thing. So it appears kind of, we don't have much to go off of, but it appears that many citizens had a pact with Tobiah and they liked Tobiah. So they wanted to reconcile Tobiah with Nehemiah. And, you know, we'd seen Tobiah working with Sanballat and other people like the Arabs and the Ashdodites and some other communities or groups of people that were enemies of Nehemiah's work in Jerusalem and now they kind of want this reconciliation and they were sent and they were there were letters sent to Nehemiah but then at the end Tobiah's bad intent comes out as chapter 6 comes to a close Tobiah sends Nehemiah letters to make him afraid so although it appeared on the surface like there's going to be some sort of reconciliation doesn't really happen again that's kind of all that's there but it is still a really weird finish to this chapter however one thing that's worth noting as as we conclude this chapter is many of you might have been thinking when Andre and Michael first talked about Nehemiah, they really just talked about, you know, this wall is super significant. Here's why, you know, this is what we're going to be talking about mainly in Nehemiah, all these things. But we're through six out of what I think is 13 chapters in Nehemiah. So it's worth at least considering what's the rest of the book if there's like so many chapters left? Well, we're going to see Nehemiah make a genealogy of the of returned exiles and work on the wall. We're going to see Ezra return from the book of Ezra. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about Ezra himself. 
Um, we're going to see the people confess sin. We're going to see covenantal renewal. So there's a lot left in Nehemiah to talk about. So don't tune out just because you think the wall is completed and therefore the story's over. There's so much good stuff left in Nehemiah as well. And just a last point about five and six before we completely move on is something that I saw was that throughout these two chapters, we just see Nehemiah having this very good discernment and spiritual wisdom and he attributes a lot of that to his prayer, his relationship with God. But I was just looking around online and I was trying to figure out where is this really discernment coming from? And a lot of sources pointed that this discernment really comes from the Holy Spirit. And I told Michael, I was going to ask him this question. He said he maybe had some verses to like help explain it all that. But just talk a little bit about kind of what your thoughts are on like just like the Holy Spirit's role in just having that spiritual discernment. Yeah, so saying oh, all of your wisdom or discernment will come from the Holy Spirit can sound a little ethereal or intangible. You might even think of the Holy Spirit as a force, which you shouldn't. He's the third person of the Trinity. And if you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, he's dwelling inside you right now. But there's there's a lot of good stuff on that. So one thing personally for me is before I lead a Bible study, every single time I read through 1 Corinthians 2, I think that's the chapter, but it's the chapter where Paul is saying, the spirit is the only thing that knows the inner man. Only the spirit knows the depths of a man. And just because this is a true fact that Paul states, he then draws the logic about God saying only the Holy Spirit, therefore, knows the depths of God. So if we want to know the depths of God, if we want to know um, what God has a will for us to do, if we want to know what God is up to in our own lives, and if we want true wisdom, then we need to seek the Holy Spirit, be dependent on the Holy Spirit, because of one of, one of my most natural inclinations is to think, you know, in prepping, oh, I've led X amount of studies, so, you know, I can put this together. But to really sit back, to get on my knees, to ask the Holy Spirit to move with wisdom is something that's most powerful for me. And then the second thing is, if you're looking for wisdom, um, I think, and we read through this last year as a friend group, but turn to the book of Proverbs. There's so much wisdom in there. There's so much wisdom in the book of James, which is considered like the New Testament Proverbs. But I think that one of the biggest things about wisdom and discernment is just asking yourself certain questions and turning to scripture. So those questions might be, will it cause another brother to stumble? That's, I think that's in Romans 14. Will this actually help me love God more? Not just is it sinful or is it wrong, but will it actually help me treasure Christ? Asking those sorts of questions are helpful. And then just turning to scripture, let your mind be rooted in God's word so that you can abide in Jesus fuller or in more depth Then I would say you're going to be on that path to what you're talking about, Andre, in terms of just being dependent on the spirit for discernment and wisdom. That's, that's really good, dude. And I don't know, do you have anything else for these two chapters or kind of, I know I just want to say thank you to everyone for like powering through this really long episode compared to some of the other ones, but there was a lot of really good stuff and we kind of started building on some stuff that we didn't really talk to beforehand, talk about beforehand, which is really cool too. But I don't know if you have any last points or if you want to just kind of wrap this up a little bit. No, I didn't have any concluding points other than to say it's obvious that if Andre and I are reaching an agreement about the best restaurant, if you A, live in Dallas and haven't been to Heart 8, you need to go there. And if you ever come to Dallas and you're not from here, please go to Heart 8 and check it out. I just want to say also it's good we're getting some points back after just dogging on Whataburger so much. So hopefully some people just like find some more favors since we actually do like Heart 8. Yeah, for sure. So thanks for tuning in to... This episode where we covered Nehemiah 5 and 6, we'll be back next time looking at some sort of genealogy and 
what the narrative looks like as the story continues in the book of Nehemiah. Thanks again. This is Radically Normal.